Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Today on the program, New York Times reporter Matt Richtel joins us to talk about his latest book, The Cloud. Richtel covers technology and telecommunications from the San Francisco Bureau. His novel, The Cloud, is the personal story of the character Nat Idol, who in his search for truth finds himself lost in a psychedelic maze while discovering the impossible. Ultimately, the cloud is a symbol for the digital age and serves as a cautionary tale about the addictive power of technology. I spoke to him recently on current technology, an iPhone, about the cloud technology, reporting and writing. What did you read and what are your influences today? They are stories that at once sweep me up in the plot and also... Um, are completely character-based. So they have some quality of literature where I believe in the characters and care about them, but they have some quality of the best dime store novels. And sometimes literature can do that. There's various books that are capable of doing both. And the reason I mention those attributes is it's what I try to do. I mean, I try to write the books that I'd want to read, um, and I try to write books that I am thrilled to write. And I guess I'd, I'd put that, um, I'd distinguish that from merely writing a book for its own sake. In fact, going back to that idea of the, the first question we talked about, becoming a writer, or if I even call myself that, someone who writes. At one point as a journalist, I thought writing a book sounded like the worst idea in the world, uh, something an ambitious person did, and one day when I started writing my first novel, I began writing this story, and I was so caught up in what was going to happen that I didn't stop writing for five months, and it was really an act of passion, and I, I know I'm in the right place when that's what's happening for me when I write. How do you write? I know a lot of writers like to isolate themselves and write in specific places. What kind of environments do you prefer? I mean, really, I've got a really aggressive muse. And um, and I guess I mean awake in two ways. One, if, I'm, if I've got a story, it's living with me. But also, I guess I also mean it in the way of rested. So I like to write in the morning. And if I am rested and if I am awake in all its meanings, um, I can write a thousand pretty effective words or 1500 in in an hour or an hour and a half now they may not be you know as one poet said they may be the words may be in the wrong order but oftentimes they're they're close to the right order so the story is living with me when i'm awake and then when i'm rested um, i i can write other than that it could be a cafe it could be my office I try to do it in places where i'm not stealing attention from other people say wife and children what is it that you love about reporting and investigative journalism? I guess, uh, what drives you? I think I like ideas, and I like talking about ideas, and I like hearing people's ideas, and I like, I like just sort of informing my understanding of the world. And, um, and I also like, and I think, this is, I think this is maybe truer um, on some basic primitive level, I like a sense of completion. And um, it provides a, a momentary sense of freedom. And so when I do my journalism, I get these periodic moments of completion. The way I have sort of come to see the world is in 
much more generic terms than, for me at least, than I like journalism or I like, you know, medicine or I like law or I like ditch digging or I like, I think those things all belong in more generic categories of sort of broad things that serve us. And in my case, you know, the the rhythm of journalism, while it does serve my interest in the world, I guess the civic duty, the sense of civic duty that I've that my my parents um, that I inherited from my parents, um, it also serves almost kind of a neurological end of being able to work through a problem and complete it, and then move on to another problem. And your coverage of technology, where did that start with you? On the substance of it, I I like to try to untangle issues in our lives where we take things for granted or there might be disconnects or we might be lying to ourselves. And I don't mean that in a critical way like someone's lying to us. I mean we might be lying to ourselves. So let's take distracted driving. You know, one of the th- when I knew we were onto something really powerful, it was not that I recognized that the science said it's fairly impossible slash idiotic to text while you're driving. The more powerful thought to me was everybody says that in the polls overwhelmingly, this sh- no one should do this, and they all said, not only do I do it, I can get away with it. And that was a fundamental core disconnect. And I like looking for those places that um, – Either I'm not being frank with myself or we are not being frank with ourselves as a society or as individuals. I mean, it is the, you know, we often think of investigative reporting as finding the bad guy. I like to find kind of the flaw in the logic. And um, there can be bad actors within that, but oftentimes our bad actors are, 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 is our humanity. You know, I've taken on some pretty big topics, distracted driving with some real heavy science, computer use in the classroom and whether it's effective, and our brain on computers. Those were big series we took on. And I got an interesting call or I had an interesting exchange with a guy, um, a, a pretty well-heeled professor in computers and education, and he's, I was interviewing him about another story, uh, a related story, a few weeks ago. My series had come out more than a year ago, and he said, when I first called him, he said, I'm not sure you're going to want to talk to me. I've written terrible things about your journalism. And I said, I said, all right, I could take it. He said, he said, let me actually retract. I did, it's not that I was critical of your journalism. In fact, I just said that I disagreed with some of it. But he said, but the reality is you have been so careful and your questions are so provocative that you are the required reading in our field. And I'm not telling you that to pat myself on the back, although it may, even over the air, you can hear the sound of my arm breaking doing so. The reason I'm saying that is because I'm trying to couch things and characterize things in ways that are not pot shots. They're not aimed at taking people down. They're aimed at explicating ideas in a way that that even those who have a vested interest might say, hang on a second. Let's think about what's going on. That doesn't mean I know better about a thing. It means I'm trying to piece the logic together, talking to a lot of different sources. Does it make sense? That is such a good point because oftentimes when you think of an investigative report, one automatically assumes there's a bad guy in there. We want someone, we want someone to blame. I think it's a human it's – it's, there's kind of human 
you know, drama in that. And I'm not saying that there aren't people taking advantage of systems and that the, and, and at times these stories have called those people out and called out the institutions and the, and the corporations. But I, I try to also put them in the context of the humanity of it all. I, one of the chances I took in this book, and I, I don't want to give away too much, but I, it's a conspiracy and it's not, well, I'll, I'll tell you that at the end, you'll have to determine whether there's a bad guy or not. And it sort of fits into this idea of whether we are, you know, terrible forces are arrayed against us or we are just working out our own humanity. So that's this stuff that I've been talking about. It's only dawned on me in the course of this interview that that kind of connects to how I look at the journalism. How much of you is in the main character, Nat? Um, well, first of all, I think the first thing, I, I defy any writer to tell me otherwise, any male writer, that their protagonist isn't simply a, uh, at least physically, isn't a better-looking, taller version of themselves. So <laughs> that's the first thing I'll own up. He's better-looking than me and taller. Um, <laughs> it's a low bar to get over, at least in the good-looking part. In some ways, he's not autobiographical at all because um, his anecdotes and his dialogue and his upbringing and where he lives and all of that stuff is fictional. And a lot of that reason is because I love I love invention and I get to do it. And that's that's just part of the fun is letting a story, uh, the character flow within the constraints of the story. I also, having said that, never write a character or an emotion that I can't connect to. And everything he feels and the other characters in this story feel – I've either felt or I can connect to, and um, in this in this story he goes through some through some stuff I would I've never experienced, but I found a place in myself where I could connect to it. Um, he he suffers uh, um, some damage that I I have been glad to not have suffer, and I hope I don't. I, I don't mean physically, although there's a bit of that too, but emotionally, and I'm glad I haven't. But I can I do feel like I can connect to those things, and I'm. I'm really sad when I write those things, and I'm happy for him and hopeful for him. Um, and then, and then, finally, going back to ways in which he is autobiographical. You know, we're both we're both a little bit athletic. We both try to use humor to connect. Um, neither of us particularly likes confrontation. We'd rather connect with someone. Uh, we both have sort of insatiable intellectual curiosities. So, how about the answer is yes and no? What does the name Nat Idol signify to you? I realized recently that even though names are very hard for me to pick, I oftentimes come up with names and say, man, that's the worst name, I, and I have to use a find and replace at the end of the book, that I also have realized that some of the names I pick seems to almost have some branding unintentionally involved. For instance, uh, Nat Idol in this book, and I'll come back to Nat Idol in a second, runs into a character named uh, his, the, this potential femme fatale is named Faith. You can do all kinds of things with that. It can be either pregnant or not. Um, and in Nat Idol's case, I guess maybe um, I was doing something car makers do. You know how they, they um, come up with names and it sounds like it might be something, um, you know, it's, it's just it's close enough to be the Chevy Volt or whatever. It, you know, it could be something or maybe it's not something. I think in the case of Nat Idol, um, I was playing with the idea that um, 
that it both sounded catchy off the tongue and maybe there's some pregnancy to it. Maybe uh, maybe he struggles with being quiet. Um, that certainly has evolved into part of his character. I don't know that it was that deliberate at the time. The title of your book, The Cloud, can you describe what it means literally and physically? The Cloud, um, and I know many people listening know this, is you know where we store our data. It's this big collection of servers, and it's become this warehouse for so much personal information. For me, um, writing a high-tech thriller, I, I get into some of the issues around the cloud, that cloud, but also there's another meaning in this story, and that is the mental or emotional cloud, both that our protagonist, Nat Idol, finds himself in, and the cloud that a bunch of Bay Area children, San Francisco Bay Area children, find themselves in to the point where there are a couple of mysterious deaths involving Bay Area children. And Nat Idol has to go figure out why. And so there's a, both a technical cloud and a metaphorical cloud, and both are, are very applicable in this book. In March 2012, Wired Magazine published an article about a national security agency spy center located in Bluffdale, Utah. And apparently they have the ability to record all cell phone calls and email exchanges and other electronic communications uh, for all U.S. citizens and, and store them up to 100 years. Wow, i got to go look that up. Are they listening to us now? Actually, a, a kind of a reviewer made note of this in the cloud, said that, that I guess Nat Idol says at one point, and I'd forgotten about this, he, he believes the bad guys might be watching in on him. And he says, he says he goes ahead and does on his computer. And he goes ahead and does whatever he's going to do anyway, knowing he's being watched. And he says, you're foolish if you don't think you're being watched these days or something to these effect. And, you know, maybe, maybe part of us is, is coming to accept that, <laughs> that uh, you know, a kind of a what are you going to do about it? And maybe, maybe the what are you going to do about it happens when there's a watershed event where something extraordinary, inexplicable, improbable, and yet totally predictable happens that is such a, a terrible violation of our civil rights or um, our privacy, if those aren't the same things, that we react. What's your opinion of these technologies we carry around with us every day? Computers, phones? I think they're, they're like so many things, mixed blessings. And I think what I've tried to do through my journalism and through these thrillers is to look at the mixed part because I think there are enough people telling us that they're blessings. you got a whole industry telling us that we can't live without the greatest, fastest, newest, most connected, most powerful uh, information machine on the planet. And, and I do think that there's room, going back to earlier in the conversation about looking for disconnects and logic leaps in society, I think there's room to look critically at just what we're buying and equipping ourselves with. I don't think, I mean, you know, I hope that the cloud is kind of a thrilling, fun, uh, exciting mystery, but I also think that there is some real science underneath what's, what, what is there, and I think we ought to be asking ourselves through science and, and, and allowing ourselves to look at the science and say, okay, are we addicted? Are we using it compulsively? If so, why? How is it playing to our brains? What does it mean for privacy? Um, we all, I think we're paying lip service to those ideas, but we are also adopting this stuff in mass uh, 
in a way that suggests we're not taking the questions that seriously. In one of your interviews, you mentioned how technology is affecting our language, like texting. I think it is affecting our language, and this is one of those places where I'm not sure if it's for better or worse. You know, we're we're finding ourselves simplifying things, and the, the level at which I see this is potentially the most destructive is politically. These are pretty big issues we're dealing with, like debt or, you know, fill in the blank, and they need people thinking very deeply, and, and uh, up until now, I think that we have sort of blamed the simplification on 24-hour news media, and I don't doubt that that plays a role, but I also think that it has to do with the way language is used today, 140 characters or less, or if you listen to the pundits who study how to reach people and get attention, they say a tweet is too long now to get attention. You just need to put up an Instagram picture, and so how do we deal with complex issues? That said, this is the other side of the coin. I do think concise, effective storytelling communications is going to is going to be put at a, a great premium today. And they're going to be the, the the Shakespeare's of Twitter if they don't already exist. If maybe they exist and I haven't, you know, I haven't signed up, or maybe I'm too busy blabbing myself. But I do <laughs> think that that people will come along who can marry to some extent, the depth of things with concision and the demands of the environment. Um, whether we're going to be able to digest these massive problems that we're creating, this kind of um, you know, almost intellectual de- uh, deficit and debt we're creating by, by glossing over things, I don't know. We just have time for one more question. I really want to ask you, what do you enjoy more, writing books like The Cloud or reporting? I think by far reporting. And most people that I talk to say they hate hated writing term papers. They don't like writing a grocery list. It makes them feel horrible. I just really, not only, it's not that writing is easy. It's not the right word. But it is such pleasure that when I finish the reporting in something, I'm thrilled to sit down and write. And I like the feeling of it coming out of my pen. I like, rather I should say, I like my fingers flying across the keyboard um, I like creating the sentences. I like seeing the sentences fit together. I like playing with the language. So it's not that I don't like both, but I do love writing. And um, I haven't—I guess I haven't thought that much about it to understand why that is. But maybe if it's—if it ain't broke, don't think too much about it. That's not fair to say. Maybe it's broke. Maybe will people read it and go, "You call yourself a writer," but I just mean the—the the activity at least ain't broke for me. Anything else? There's actually Utah plays a huge part in my life right now and a not insubstantial part in this book. Um, oh. There's some, yes, uh, University of Utah, um, and also up in the north in Logan. Um, I'm yeah. writing a, a nonfiction book about technology in the brain that has to do with some stuff that took place in Logan. I'm not, I'm, we'll tell you about it in some other conversation. But also, um, there's some pretty good research out of Utah about technology and the brain, looking at the brain in studies, and they've done a lot of driving tests. And a lot of what I, uh, you know, not a lot of what I write about, but some of what I write about has been inspired and informed by um, some of the research there. And, uh, And I'm pretty appreciative of it. And I've gotten to know a bunch of people in the state. I just really love the place. That was New York Times reporter Matt Richtel. Stay tuned for Science Questions, where producer Elaine Taylor explores the economics of climate change with Lori Johnson from the National Resource Defense Council. 
Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Support for Science Questions is provided by USU's College of Science, advancing the educational experience of future scientists with advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu science. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Vice President, members of Congress, fellow Americans. President Obama gave his State of the Union address this week and spoke at length about investing in clean energy and the environment. Also in the news this week, the inversion has settled over northern Utah once again, trapping the air full of dirty particulates in mountain valleys. In light of Obama's focus on clean energy and northern Utah's air pollution, the worst in the nation, we at Science Questions decided it was time to take another look at climate change, this time from an economic perspective. In today's show, we'll be learning about the hidden costs of climate change, and we'll be discussing how switching from non-renewable fuel sources, like coal and fracking, might actually help the economy grow. I'm Sherry Quinn. And I'm Elaine Taylor. Welcome to Science Questions. Um, So, I guess we can start out. Could I have you introduce... Elaine recently spoke with Lori Johnson... She joined the Natural Resources Defense Council in 2008 after working as a professor at the University of Denver. Lori Johnson, and I am the chief economist for the Climate and Clean Air Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and I work on climate change economics. The NRDC was founded in 1970. Their website claims that it is, quote, the nation's most effective environmental action group. The NRDC's mission statement is, Quote, to safeguard the earth, its people, its plants and animals, and the natural systems on which all life depends. Johnson explains what the NRDC actually does. We have over a million activists um, online as well as members, and we work to, um, we have scientists and lawyers and economists, and we work to protect the public health and make sure that our environmental laws not only are passed in a way that makes sense, that are good policies, but also that they, they get enforced as well. So that's why we have a large legal staff. Um, and so we also work to educate the public. As Johnson said, the NRDC spends a lot of time with politicians trying to pass legislation that will protect the environment. I asked her to set the stage of where we are as a nation right now with global warming. You know, uh, there's always extreme weather. There's always climate uh, extremes, but the problem with the, the climate change and the global warming is that we're effectively putting the climate on steroids. It's it's like you give a you know baseball player steroids, and they're going to hit a lot more home runs. They're going to hit it a lot farther out, and more often. So that's kind of what we're doing with the climate in terms of altering it. Now I think everyone has seen pretty clearly that the weather is getting more extreme, and we've had record forest fires. We've had record extreme events like Sandy, um, tornadoes and those sorts of extreme weather events. Um, We've also had a lot of public health impacts. These aren't the sort of extreme weather events, but there are public health uh, impacts associated with things like Sandy. People have had their basements flooded and they've gone down and gone into 
areas that are contaminated and are actually quite dangerous for their health. Um, and then there's water issues. So there's there's some public health issues associated with these extreme weather events, not just the destruction that comes with the the, um, the weather in terms of infrastructure and property and that sort of thing. And people also are homeless and need food. And of course, all that has public health implications. It does seem clear that the weather is getting more extreme. Even President Obama mentioned it in this week's State of the Union address. Heat waves, droughts, wildfires, floods, all are now more frequent and more intense. During the interview, Lori kept returning to the idea that climate change affects all facets of our lives. It isn't just about wildfires or inversions. Instead, it relates to things that may be more relatable to most Americans, like public health and the economy. So... For the weather, uh, I say I would say you know the drought and the forest fires and these extreme storms have been the most pronounced. They're what people have seen. Um, what people don't see so much of are that it's not obvious to people are things like Lyme's disease, um, which is very it's a very debilitating disease. I've known several people who are actually permanently disabled from it. Um, other types of diseases like West Nile virus, very 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 dramatic uh, impacts on wildlife uh, and the different environments, the wildlife is not able to adjust fast enough. The change is happening so fast that it's hard for them to move. And then when they do try to move to their sort of a colder climate, they, they're often confronted with natural, um, well, with things that are built by, human, by humans. So there's a lot of impacts there that, that people might not be aware of. And then there is, of course, the, the sea level rise. Um, the drought actually last year is estimated to have knocked off about half of our growth that we had last year, um, our economic growth. So to put that in perspective, that's about $140 billion. Um, and to put that in sort of perspective, Sandy was about maybe $80 billion. They haven't done the tally uh, completely um, yet, but the costs are adding up quite high. And, and not just what you're preventing in climate damages, but also uh, tens of thousands of people die every year from breathing the, um, the pollution that comes out of burning fossil fuel. Um, and we have many, many, many cases of asthma, millions of cases of asthma that's exacerbated or caused by it. And maybe 25% of those are in our children. Uh, so those are also part of the benefits calculation. Um, and they're big. They're very big. Yes. Well, there's also the environmental. Remember, you know, we are destroying the environment and jobs when we do all this fossil fuel mining, um, not just from the burning part, but the mining. We're polluting rivers, polluting the oceans. If you look at what happened in the Gulf, spill, Gulf oil spill, thousands of people lost their jobs um, from tourism, fishing, et cetera. So it's, it's as I said earlier in the jobs equation, there's, there's a lot of jobs that are lost with fossil fuel. Um, mining and combustion. So far, the global climate has warmed about 0.8 degrees Celsius, which, to be honest, doesn't seem like a very big number. But as Johnson pointed out, if this is all it takes to start seeing an increase in natural disasters, what is our planet going to look like when we reach the 5 degree increase that is predicted? During the interview, I asked Johnson what she thought the administration's plan would be for the next four years. 
At the time, President Obama had yet to give a clear picture of what he hoped to accomplish during his second term. Luckily for us, since then, President Obama outlined his plan in the State of the Union address. We're very cautiously optimistic that he will use the Clean Air Act authority that he has so he can use his executive authority. If Congress won't act soon to protect future generations, I will. Under existing law, the Clean Air Act, um, as mandated by the Supreme Court, to first and foremost start with uh, reducing emissions at our largest source right now, which is our electricity, our power system. Let's cut in half the energy wasted by our homes and businesses over the next 20 years. And NRDC just did a study, and we basically came up with a way that states can do this individually. We'll work with the states to do it. Which is, takes into account the fact that states have very different um, energy mixes and give them lots of options. And we found that you could do it very cost-effectively, about six to 15 times uh, benefits in, in excess of cost. So that would be the best place, we think, for him to start because Congress is just not working. And then uh, apart from that, we really hope that he can be very aggressive on pursuing cleaner energy, making sure we have sufficient research and development, making sure we have enough incentives to make to, so that solar can continue to be um, expanded and for the cost to continue coming down. They have been coming down well. Solar energy gets cheaper by the year. Let's drive down costs even further. As well as with wind, but we have to keep them going because they're still pretty new industries. Last year, wind energy added nearly half of all new power capacity in America. So let's generate even more. As long as countries like China keep going all in on clean energy, so must we. China is making about five times more the investment in um, cleaner energy, wind and solar, than we are. Um, so I think that they're being much more aggressive on getting these alternatives up and running. We have better um, research institutions to do that. We have better markets. Um, we can do it very, very well, the innovative side. That's what we're really good at. So there's no reason we shouldn't be doing this. And China's doing it because it's good, good business. It is the fastest growing sector um, in, in the world, I think, is, is clean energy. And venture capital has just exploded in that. Um, a decade, it's been gone from a few percentage points to, to something like 25% of all new venture capital is towards clean energy. So this is something we, we, need, we need to be part of. Um, and yeah, I would say China's probably doing the most in terms of clean energy. But Germany has also had a very, very um, aggressive program with their renewables. They've got wind. Uh, their renewables, are, they're about 20%. Uh, we're just a few percentage points for renewables in our energy system. But they have done it with expensive, but with a very good return um, uh, incentives to solar and wind. And at a given day, on a very good day, um, and mind you, Germany is like Alaska in terms of its sun power. <laughs> it's not great. Um, but on a very good day, they can run their electricity 50% on solar. And this is, this is energy that people are selling back to the grid from their homes. The grid has to buy it back. So this is something that is very popular. And while it's expensive, definitely more expensive, it's something that, well, the rest of the world has benefited from the lowered cost of solar for one. But it's, it's better for the environment, and they're ahead of the game in terms of dealing with their carbon pollution and all the negative impacts of, of fossil fuels. So it sounds like um, 
switching to environmentally friendly technologies is actually pretty could be pretty good for the economy. Why do you think it's taken so long to catch on here in the U.S.? There's um, the fossil fuel industry has had a hundred years worth of subsidies. They've been on the dole for 100 years. And renewable, cleaner sources, they cost more because we haven't invested in them. So the market by itself won't do it. We actually have to, to do more of it. And I think the fossil fuel lobby has been very successful at getting their subsidies. They get a lot of subsidies, about $8 billion a year. Um, and what's, what is happening is at the state level, there's about 30-something states that have renewable standards and how much electricity has to be produced from renewables. Um, and that's definitely getting stronger. Why we don't have stronger policies, there's not. These, a lot of the renewable um, businesses don't exist yet. They don't have a huge amount of lobbying power yet, whereas the fossil fuel lobby does. Um, so it's a matter of political will, and we just haven't, haven't taken it. Even with a 100-year head start, Johnson remains positive about the transition to cleaner fuel sources. I am hopeful. I know the American people really are very much in favor of cleaner energy, and it crosses party lines. Uh, what is being done in Congress is not reflective um, of voter preferences with respect to clean energy, um, or what shall I say, what's not being done. Um, so it's very, very popular with with. Americans. And um, hopefully, I hope it doesn't take too many more of these very severe weather events to really get the bottom up um, sort of demand for it. Obama can only do so much. Um, he can do a lot with the Clean Air Act and the, his executive authority. But, um, you know, to get funding for renewables, he, he's got to have a strong support base of people who are pushing their their politicians to give them what they want. And right now, the fossil fuel lobby is spending a lot more money on these politicians. So the only thing that's going to counter that money is people and their votes. What is your response to uh, people saying that environmental regulation like destroys jobs or that it's not going to help the economy? I think that's very, I don't, I, I think it's very disingenuous. It's often being said by fossil fuel interests whose livelihood is at stake. If you just do the math, it's actually, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not true. People, ha, if you're going to have environmental protection or you're going to have clean energy, somebody has to do it. Um, that means somebody has to have a job to do it. So it's really a false um, false argument. It doesn't hold any merit. Having said that, there are small, small sectors. So for instance, you would have, you could have coal miners threatened and lose their jobs. And that's a real problem, but it's not a reason not to um, pursue these alternatives because A, they create jobs, but they're not killing people uh, and making people sick. So you have to have good social programs to deal with the, the some, you know, small job displacement that would happen. But um, you have to also think about all the jobs that are lost from fossil fuels. It's not just people maybe working at a mine. Think of all the jobs that were lost from the oil spill that we had in the Gulf. 
thousands of fishermen, thousands of people in the tourism industry. Look at the drought, thousands of farmers. Um, look at what happened with Hurricane Sandy. A lot of people are out of work. So it's it's much more complicated than, than something as, you know, as simple as, well, you're going to close down this coal plant or this coal mine. There's a lot of other jobs on, on many sides of the ledger. So however idealistic we are about the environment and the cost of climate change, it's important to realize that people, even politicians, especially politicians, listen to money. And it may take an economic approach to climate change to see new policies made on a national scale. As a nation, we have reached a point where fossil fuels may no longer be cheaper than renewables, meaning that one day, hopefully not too far in the future, having a strong economy won't mean giving up clean air and public health. If people do want to become more involved, what, what can they do? I think they should, first and foremost, look at the local level, see what their politicians are doing, what policies they support, uh, and pay attention to that when they vote. Uh, the local level, at the state level, um, their congressmen, their senators, because the, the federal government is not doing what it needs to do. And really where this is going to happen, it's going to be from the bottom up. It's going to be from states and localities. Uh, and that's um, where it has to, has to originate from. So I would say people need to be pressing their politicians for these cleaner energy To learn more about the Natural Resources Defense Council, visit nrdc.org. Next, Sherry talks to one of the nation's most well-known ecologists about the future of the U.S. coasts. I want to take the breath that's true. My name is Steve Affelbaum, and I'm the chairman of a company called Applied Ecological Services and uh, also a senior ecologist with the firm. Affelbaum is the co-author of the Restoring Ecological Health to Your Land series and author of Nature's Second Chance, a 30-year memoir of the restoration of his family's dairy farm near Judah, Wisconsin. His work at Applied Ecological Services has taken him across the world, where the company's engineers and scientists work on projects to bring nature back, including river restoration, stabilizing fisheries habitat, converting landfills into parks, copper, coal, gold, and silver mines into reclaimed landscapes for a range of public uses, such as hunting, camping, fishing, and more formalized landscapes with groomed hikes and trails. Every project that we work on requires that we examine and understand what the history of the land used to be in, in, those, in the project location and how it's changed to come to its present condition. And during every project, we get a, a glimmer of the grandeur and the beauty and the diversity of what used to be present. And we're standing oftentimes in front of, you know, these really seriously depleted and eroded landscapes. The juxtaposition of that historic condition and the existing condition are, are all too apparent. And, and you know, it's oftentimes just depressing and, and seriously demoralizing to think how we've treated this, this magnificent land. Uh, so on every project, our job has been to bring back life. And we do understand and are exposed to you know, what's happening 
throughout many parts of the country and many parts of the world. The fracking for natural gas, the uh, oil sand, tar sand work in Alberta, many of the big uh, agricultural operations in the country. The urban development activities that keep chewing away at landscapes and, and the open space around our cities and within our cities. The deterioration of even conservation lands as invasive species of plants and animals colonize those in all, what we believe to be already protected lands, those lands start deteriorating. So we're, we're watching that. We're watching you know, serious runoff from and water quality problems from cities and agricultural landscapes deteriorating the aquatic, the estuary, the lake, the river, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the ocean uh, environments. And we're working on projects to try to hit the undo button or to at least slow the rate of deterioration and reverse the Titanic wherever we can. Reversing the damage is rewarding, he says, and notes there are three sides to seeing those changes. Change your heart Look around you Change your heart It will astound you One side is, you know, the realization of what has happened. It's just an epiphany on virtually every project to learn about the changes that have occurred. So that's, you know, the first reward is making that connection with the history and with the changes that have occurred. The second is um, sharing what we learn with clients and with stakeholders in a community. When the light bulbs go on and people realize the trajectory that a lot of our landscapes and ecosystems and wildlife species are on, there is empathy that pours out of the woodwork. And people people love the land and they love nature. They don't know how to understand what condition it's in, and they don't understand how to help nature. Once they understand that we've got a a sick patient on our hands, uh, the empathy is much like what would happen if, you know, a child was injured or a child was sick or an elder or a you know loved one, a family member was sick. The nurturing, repairing, loving tendencies of the human being comes out, and and uh, it's it's a beautiful thing. So that's the second thing, and then the third thing that just absolutely never ceases to amaze me is how the land responds. These most land areas on the on the planet. Uh, have an innate ability and innate capacity to recover, just like we do when we get sick. As uh, you know, when when I get sick, I I can usually recover without much assistance. My body has its way of knowing and and does in fact recover. So has been able to do so for 59 years so far. Um, the land, when one knows how to stop the the process of deterioration and the downward spiral and reverse that with some nudges and encouragement to planting the right seeds, working with restoring the hydrology relationships to the landscape. It's remarkable to see the life come back and then to see people recognize the beauty and to want to get out on that land and, and or you know, view it from afar. So there, there's wonderful, wonderful reasons to do restoration and there's wonderful rewards 
not only the inherent rewards to the ecosystem, but also human relationships with the earth and with land are, are wonderfully rewarded. Alfelbaum co-teaches a course at Harvard University on the future of coastal areas on the planet. We've had students from 43 countries in that class, and every single country that has coastal environment or large rivers is faced with the same challenges, the deterioration of the coastal areas from water quality, from changing the changing meteorological conditions, you know, more intense storms, more frequent storms, higher erosion in the tributary areas, the watersheds to those coastal areas, and then higher erosion in the coastal resources like the coastal marshes, the mangrove systems. So what we've been doing as a part of this class, and then I've been working on this professionally on projects, is really trying to understand the the future trajectory of our coastal areas. What we know, unequivocal, is that a majority of our coastal areas, whether they be Arctic or temperate zone or subtropical, like in Florida, southern Florida, or tropical areas in Costa Rica and down through the northern uh, South America, many of the same patterns of deterioration are occurring in in all of these locations, And, and not just here, I mean, in Madagascar and Indonesia and Australia and New Zealand and the list of places goes on. What we're seeing is the greater intensity of storms that are dropping more intense rainfall over landscapes or very little rainfall. We're seeing huge swings in intensity from way more rainfall dropped in a very short period of time, which contributes to severe erosion in the watershed in the tributary rivers and the downstream effects in the coastal areas are significant. Two, uh, increasing drought severity, where some locations are going from severe wet to severe dry and creating these these you know patterns of change uh, initially with the severe wet. Uh, and then the coastal storms, the increasing number of intense hurricanes and tropical storms and tidal surges are are seriously deteriorating many of the coastal barrier islands, the coastal wetlands, and in places, tropical areas and subtropical areas, where mangroves uh, might be there involved in protecting the shoreline. The deterioration of all of these buffering systems is very apparent throughout the world. It's not only deteriorating because of these changing meteorological patterns, the intensity changes, and the frequency changes, but it's also changing because of the land development, land use changes in those areas. We haven't recognized the value of these buffers for protecting our you know, northeastern U.S. coastal areas or the city of New York. We're building right up to the edge of the water or within a couple hundred feet of the water. These barrier islands and these coastal wetlands throughout the world were dominated by plant species that could tolerate and endure the high winds the big storm surges, even tsunamis. Effects to the economy from changing weather patterns, not only affecting the coastal areas, but continental land masses, is already significant and becoming more so. I'll give you some sense of economics here, and we'll use the insurance industry as an example. My understanding, based on doing book work and talking to a couple of the largest insurance companies in the world, is that for about 10 to 15 years, Ending in about 2009, they were spending two to three billion dollars a year on insurance claims associated with weather-related changes and, and uh, 
catastrophic weather. They define catastrophic weather impacts as each costing about a billion dollars. So they were spending about a billion dollars apiece on three major catastrophic events in in the U.S. every year through about 2009-ish. Since then, since 2009, so in 2010, 11, 12, the number of catastrophic events in this country, just the U.S., have gone up to between 10 and 15 a year. So 10 to $15 billion a year in insurance claims associated with, you know, tornadoes, hurricanes, drought, and erosion, straight-line winds that are blowing down forests and houses, things like that. So in 2012, it appears as though that economic impact will jump uh, beyond the charts. The drought impact to 62% of lower 48 uh, states, I haven't seen the numbers yet uh, from USDA and crop failures uh, from the drought, but what I have heard is that it's probably going to be somewhere between, between 20 and $50 billion in impacts. So what's happened if you plot the cost of the intensification and and predictably unpredictable meteorological events of the past 10, 15 years, but more recently of late, in the past four or five years, the economic impact is significant, just significant. So, you know, what's at stake is water availability, food security, the health and safety of our, our citizens, in many places of the country, certainly in many places of the world. And then there's other impacts that, you know, the sea level rise, which is absolutely occurring. No doubt that it's occurring in places already documented. That's what we're starting to see, and that's what's predicted to continue to occur. And we need to realize that there's something changing uh, under our feet. We need to have a national conversation about this and not, you know, be delusional and not recognize the facts, not sit and argue about global warming. Now we're talking about something very tangible. This is not some sort of story anymore and not something to argue about. It's time to get real and do something about this, figure out strategically as a nation how we're going to adapt to these sort of changes. Thank you for tuning in. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Suzanne Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor. Sound Engineering by Clint Holgate. Butterfly flap your wings Cause summer in the nighttime sings A firefly burning bright For you, for you too, tonight